Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Keezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. I'll speak with Marissa Jackson, Spectrum News, as we talk about Phyllis George's life and influence on the careers of women sportscasters. Then I'll speak with Dave Andrews, president of the American Hockey League, about the decision to cancel the remainder of the regular season and the Calder Cup playoffs. But first, horse racing fans are rejoicing right now. Because the, uh, as my, you can hear uh, my first guest in the background, uh, the Belmont Stakes is going to happen. It's going to take place a couple weeks later than normal on June 20th, and it'll be a shorter distance. But uh, Belmont, uh, the track will be opening up uh, shortly be- before that, and uh, to talk about that. And uh, it looks like his prediction of, of the uh, Saratoga race season will be coming true without fans, maybe, is uh, Gazette sports writer Mike McGadden. Mike, welcome back to the podcast so soon. Hey, thanks for having me, Ken. How's everybody doing there? Yeah, a couple of hosannas and hallelujahs today after uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced on Saturday that racing could resume as of June 1st. And and you could tell New York Racing Association had been doing their homework all along, as they should have been, because it took them a couple days to release a full stake schedule, but also outlining, you know, the particulars about the, the Belmont stakes, which will be held on June 20th. It was originally scheduled for June 6th. Um, so timing-wise, it's not that much different than it, it w- was supposed to have been but in the grand scheme of things the whole solar system of racing you know is quite an upheaval with you know everything being re- rescheduled so um it'll be an interesting 2020 if, if all this stuff uh, works out yeah that the triple crown is sort of be going to be uh, out of out of whack with obviously the belmont stakes being the first one instead of the the finale of the triple crown series of the uh kentucky derby is going to be in september and the preakness will be in october so, I mean, just how crazy it is. So, of course, it's spread out. It's going to be spread out a lot more than, than normal than we were used to seeing. So how is this going to affect the series? Um, it's fine. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you have to really make do with what you're, you're given. And this year, you know, the schedule just didn't allow for this anything to really happen the way it's supposed to traditionally. So you kind of adjust. You figure out what's safe. You figure out, you know, how you can fit stuff where so they're not banging up against each other. Um, you know, there, New York Racing Association didn't have a lot of choices. None of them were great. Um, but once they finally got the green light this weekend, then I, I think that's really what they wanted to hear, that they would be able to, to run this in June because the only really other alternative was, I mean, I guess July, but then you're looking at, um, you know, the Preakness is October 3rd, and where do you put it in the fall? You just can't. So... You know, they, they they finally got the Hail Mary pass this weekend and, and were able to, to run it in. Um, meanwhile, the spacing difference is going to be dramatic. Um, you know, typically, the you know, since 1969, the Triple Crown format has been Kentucky Derby first Saturday in May, two weeks later the Preakness, and then three weeks after that the Belmont. It's a very compressed, difficult schedule for those three-year-olds, especially in may and june of that that season and uh because it was so tough that's why it's so you know the triple crown is so rare and it's such a you know a rarefied rarefied air of of achievement to have done it only 13 horses have done it this year i know a lot of people are going to clamor and say well it shouldn't count or there should at least be an asterisk i'm going to write a column on you know for for uh, thursday's paper saying Throw that all out the window. It's fine. It's fine the way it is. You have to make, again, make do with what is presented to you. Um, any horse that wins all three of these races this year under a lot different circumstances that, than the horses that do have done it in the past, that being they've been in limbo, they, their, their race schedule has been all jumbled, these horsemen don't know what to prepare for. Usually you have a set schedule where you work backwards from there targeting the ones that you're really trying to peak for and here because there was so much uncertainty they don't know when to peak and so to have a horse ready for a mile and an eighth shorter distance than the mile and a half for the belmont on june 20th and come back and and run in the kentucky derby in september and then four weeks later in the preakness um still a very daunting task and and um worthy of the triple crown name as far as i'm concerned 
I mean, we've seen other in other sports where you know it's been shortened seasons, like in Major League Baseball, they won this with the strike. The Dodgers won the World Series. We don't hear about an asterisk about that. Uh, the San Antonio Spurs winning the 1990 NBA title in a shortened season. Don't hear any really th- asterisks about that. So uh, maybe it's just time for the sports fans just to get over it because we are un- un- in really unusual times. Yeah, I understand the rationale for the asterisk crowd because here you're expanding the schedule and on paper you're making it easier for a horse to win it. But, you know, you still got to beat everybody that's in it. And these fields are going to be very crowded for these races. Um, And, again, going back to my uh, previous point about how difficult it is to map out, you know, peaking for these various races. I mean, there's horses that typically would have shot for the Derby and then kind of readjusted based on how they perform there on the fly, which is a very difficult thing to do. Here it's a little different puzzle, but it's definitely a very difficult puzzle. Well, let's look at the... uh Horses, if we can. I mean, right now, who's uh, could be the early favorite for the Belmont? Um, right now, um, from what Bob Baffert is, Bob Baffert has three of the top four three-year-olds in the country. The fourth being Tis the Law, who's owned locally Saratoga Springs based Sacatoga Stable, Florida Derby winner, and he's he's been pointing toward the Belmont no matter what. They they, they made that call before they even knew if there was going to be a Belmont. Meanwhile. Uh, Baffert's got Nadal, Charlatan, and Authentic, and Authentic has been chugging along in preparation for the Santa Anita Derby, which is coming up uh, two weeks before the, the rescheduled Belmont. So June 6th will be the Santa Anita Derby, and I can't see why they would change that plan. I mean, that's, again, going back to the peak and the training schedule and everything, that's what they're preparing. They're preparing to have a monster on June 6th, and so why would you you know, add two weeks to that schedule. And plus he's got two, Nadal and Charlton, that it makes sense for them to go to the Belmont because they're all triple crown worthy horses. And you got to win the first one if you're going to win all three of them. So it makes a lot of sense that he's going to throw those two in there. Pulls Authentic out of the picture for a triple crown, but, you know, two out of three ain't bad. (laughs) Do you think Naira would have considered if – Governor Cuomo maybe waited a, f- a couple weeks to announce horse racing was allowed that the Belmont Stakes could have been run at Saratoga? Uh, I don't think they would have done the, I think it probably would have been canceled altogether. Um, you know, because now you're banging into the Travers during a, what, what would have been a severely compressed time period. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure they're grateful not to have had to make that decision. Um but, you know, the, the history and the tradition and the importance of the Belmont, you know, would have definitely carried a lot of weight of, of whether they would have made that decision. And I don't know how they would have, you know, monkey-wrenched all that into that compressed time period. But it would have had to have been a consideration for sure. Thankfully, they don't have to do that now. We uh, also should mention that the Belmont Stakes will be running a little bit, a little bit of a shorter distance. Uh, how does that going to affect the training of the horses? Um, I don't. I, I think it was done with the idea of helping them train the way they should be at this point in the year with you know the racing that's been going on. Getting ready for a mile and a half race in the first you know early part of June is a very difficult thing for these three-year-olds. Which will, most of which will never run that far again as long as they they you know they have a racing career. Um, so it, it, the move makes a ton of sense because who's going. Nyer's trying to fill this field, and if they made it a, a mile and a half, I don't think too many horsemen would have chosen to run in it. Um, but it's also it, it's doing the you know the horsemen a favor that they don't have to try to prepare for a mile and a half race at that time where you've eliminated you know the bulk of the Derby prep season, which is a build up in distance, uh, you know, to the mile and a quarter for the Derby. Um, and then the Preakness, very similar distance, and, the, and then the Belmont, you move it a little. So if you just have this huge gap between what they were able to cobble together in the early part of the season and then a lot of downtime where they're kind of training and not knowing what they're supposed to race for, and then, boom, you drop a mile-and-a-half race on it. It's just too long for them. I know there's a lot of traditionalists making a stink on Twitter today, but I'm not going to be one of them because it's a very sensible move for, for both sides, really, for the horsemen, but also for Naira trying to fill a, a, a million-dollar race. Uh, obviously, no fans will be allowed to in, inside Belmont Park. Uh, how's this going? To, how will it affect the, the races? I mean, but obviously, people can bet online. So, I mean, it's a, so it's really maybe not that much of a detriment. Um, 
I think the wagering will be through the roof. Um, there's been people betting on Foner Park in Nebraska and Will Rogers Downs with, with where there's only been like five or six tracks to bet on for the last month, month and a half, whatever it is. So, I mean, the wagering is just going to go through the ceiling. It's going to be tremendous. And, you know, for instance, last year at Saratoga, they had $700 million in all sources betting handle for the meet. And only less than a quarter of that was bet on track. I think it was like, it's actually less than 21% was bet on track. So the off-track wagering handle is a huge component of everything. Um, so it's not going to affect it that much. Having no fans there for the Belmont State, you know, we've already seen some big races that have been held for the last two months with no nobody in the stands. It's kind of have to get used to it. It's a necessary evil. Um, so it's going to seem very strange. But you got to do what you got to do. There's going to be a ton of wagering on it. There's going to be tons of eyeballs on it watching on TV. So um, how it compares to a normal Belmont year, who knows? But, it, it, you know, it, you know, I'm not going to tune out the Belmont just because there's nobody in the stands. <laughs> <laughs> and now let's look ahead to Saratoga. If, you know, if we're going to have racing at Belmont, I mean, unless something drastic happens, we're going to see racing at Saratoga looks like and. Do you think at that point we might start to see some fans come come to the track? I don't know because, um, for one thing, Belmont only has a very condensed um, four weeks, whatever it is. It's about a month, four weeks, where they have to demonstrate to the world but also to themselves that they can pull this off and do it safely and then, you know, get it in the Star Trek transporter and, and send, bring that whole circus up to Saratoga and recreate it in the same safe way and, and you know, with all the, the the context of the pandemic, which is, you know, overrides everything. Um, so I, I'm still very reluctant to, to bet on there being fans at Saratoga because you really have to err on the side of caution and you just you have no choice. Um, if they did it in some limited way, I was having a Twitter conversation with one of our one of my followers today, who's there every day, every year, who bought his season pass for Saratoga yesterday, thinking that you know maybe if the, he's kind of gambling fifty bucks or seventy five, whichever package he picked, that they might come up with some plan where they say, okay, we're going to cut off season passes at five thousand or some number like that, and they're the only people who can come in. And, you know, we'll come up with procedures of where they can sit and how, you know, where they can be and, and things like I mean, that's so far in the future, though. And they, they have to get no fans right first before they can think about some fans. And so, I, so I'm still leaning very heavily toward them not letting anybody in there. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you as we get ready to uh, close out this segment, I meant to ask you this two weeks ago, but I, I completely forgot. You're a big Miami Dolphins fan, and Don Chula, you know, passed away a couple of weeks ago at the age of 90. What did he mean to you as a fan of the Dolphins? That's a good question, and I'll give you a perfect illustration of what it meant to me. Um, there was a year, and I, I, I wish I could remember which year it was, but it was probably about 20 years ago or so, maybe a little longer, where uh, I'm pretty sure it was Travers Day, too, and he showed up. We found out that he was at at Saratoga because he's friends with Kenny No, who's the president and CEO of Naira at the time, and Mike Kane, who was working for us at the time, walked over to the Gazette Annex in the Saratoga press box and said, who wants to interview Don Shula? And my, I almost punched a hole through the ceiling raising my hand volunteering for that assignment. Um, he, you know, he was trying... You know, I started rooting for the Dolphins like right around 1970. I mean, basically, started rooting for them because of the Shula teams were so great and so fun to watch. And I love people like Paul Warfield and, and Larry Zonka and Bob Greasy. And uh, Don Shula was like such—he's just such a commanding presence and was just so well respected that you were proud to root for a team that had him for a coach. And 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 then later years when he adjusted everything you know to accommodate the talents of Dan Marino I mean I just loved the guy and just had a ton of respect for him so it was sad but it was fun for me to remember that assignment at Saratoga um, where I actually got to talk to him for a little while I think there was a picture where you tweeted wasn't there yeah I, I can't remember who the photographer was for the Gazette at the time but they were in the paddock and took a picture of me and um uh couple observations of myself uh, from that is that I remember that day um had 
had a couple, had a few the night before, and probably wasn't feeling a hundred percent. You know, I, I brought my A game for the Travers Day, and also I was wearing this hideous like Argyle golf shirt that was '86, like years and years ago. So that that brought me back a little bit too. But it was kind of cool. I remember that um, going down there and talking to him, and he and Mr. Shula was totally cool and 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 you know a big racing fan. He he knew Kenny No from his days in Miami when Kenny No used to work at Gulfstream Park Park. So. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great uh, privilege for me, for sure. You can follow Mike at, on Twitter at Mike underscore McAdam. Mike, will talk more about the Belmont Stakes as we get closer to it, and we'll get your predictions from, the, from them as well. Okay, I'll be here. All I'll right. be around. Sounds good. That's Mike McAdam with the Gazette. Coming up, I'll speak with Marissa Jacks of Spectrum News as we talk about the life and the influence of Phyllis George. You're listening to the Party Shots podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. Hi, this is Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette. These are difficult times. For most of us, the coronavirus crisis has been a time of unprecedented upheaval, uncertainty, and fear. What does it all mean for our health, our families, our jobs, and our futures? At the Daily Gazette, our journalists have been working tirelessly to answer these questions and many more that have come up during this whole pandemic. How many people have tested positive locally? How many have died? Has anyone died in the local nursing homes? Now, in these difficult times, we're turning to you to support our work by purchasing a subscription or making a donation to help fund our daily efforts. With your support, these are the questions we're continuing to report on. Every day, our reporters and photographers have been working the streets and the phones to answer these critical questions. And every day, they answer the bell with their timely and well-documented reports from the front lines in the region. Behind the scenes, the rest of our editorial team, including our sports writers, copy editors, and digital producers, have been wholly focused on covering the COVID-19 story. During this critical time, everyone here at the paper is working to provide important news and information to keep the community safe and connected. But our ability to serve our community is being threatened by some economic challenges posed by the pandemic. We have stay-at-home orders, business closures, and school shutdowns, and they're contributing to the massive instability in the local business landscape. Despite all of these changes, the Gazette will remain committed to serving the community for many years to come, just as we've been doing unfailingly for the past 125 years. So please go to thedailygazette.com and donate or purchase a subscription to the Daily Gazette. Thank you, be well, and please keep reading. Welcome back to the podcast. Last Saturday, a pioneer in sports broadcasting passed away. Phyllis George was the first prominent female sportscaster as she was part of the most iconic pregame show ever, the NFL Today on CBS, starting in 1975. George fit it right in with Brent Musburger, Irv Cross, and Jimmy the Greek. She paved the way for women to become sports broadcasters and journalists. To help me talk about Phyllis George is the former sports director at Spectrum News. She is now senior executive producer and a news anchor at Spectrum News. Please welcome my good friend, Marissa Jacks. Marissa, glad to talk to you, and uh, I hope all is well and you're staying safe. Ken, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, busy, as you can imagine, um, but yeah, trying to stay safe. Hopefully you are safe as well. Well, I appreciate that. Yes, we're staying safe, and uh, not many people here in our office. I know a lot of the uh, Spectrum anchors uh, are working from home. I see uh, you know, like Julie Chapman and uh, Heather Morrison in the morning uh, doing their things from, uh, from home. So uh, have you been doing stuff from home? I've actually, so I've been doing the first part of that uh, title that you announced, the senior executive producer. I've been doing that from home, which has been uh, keeping me very busy and good. It's good to get back into it because, um, as you know, I started in news, uh, was in sports for a really long time, now back to news. So it's nice to get, you know, ease my way back into it. But uh, I'll always be in sports. I'll always have sports in my heart. And, um, you know, once we get back to normalcy, we will we'll be doing sports within our evening programming as well so that'll be hopefully fun and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit but let's talk about phyllis george first of all marissa how much of an influence was she on you to get into this business 
Well, I think, honestly, she was huge in terms of the impact that she had on all females getting into sports broadcasting. Now, obviously, she broke in and did her thing before I was even born, Ken. Mm -hmm. But as a female journalist, you know who she is and you knew who she was and what she did for the rest of us in terms of paving the way. I mean, to be in that position, to be the first one to do it is pretty amazing. And it's sad that we lost her way too soon. And as a, a female journalist and a female sportscaster, I can't thank her enough for paving the way for the rest of us. Yeah, you think about that in the time of the 1970s. You said you weren't born yet. I was uh, just a you know, early teenager at that point when she uh, you know, first came on the air. And, of course, on a Miss America, I should mention 1971 Miss America. Um, you know, she comes in, It's a, especially the NFL, it's a macho sport. You know, what are women doing here? Women don't belong in there. But, you know, she made the transition. She was... Very good. She was. You know, I think she surprised. I do think she surprised a lot of uh, of the males. And you think? I think her most famous interview with Roger Staubach. She got to talk about you know, having sex with. Because uh, the Staubach's famous quote was, uh, "I like having sex just like Joe Namath, but I just do it with one person." I mean, I don't think a, a male sportscaster could get that something. I mean, Phyllis George seemed to be at ease, and she made her uh, the interview subjects at ease too. Well, I think that was the biggest thing, Ken, and I think when she took that position, as you said, talking about the NFL, women did not do that in that day and age. A lot of people thought, well, what is this person coming in doing? What does she know about the NFL? What does she know about football? And she came in and didn't necessarily have to have the background that a former professional NFL player had. She brought what she had to the table, and that was her strength as an interviewer. Yeah, that interview, one of the uh, greatest maybe ever in terms of just changing how we think of athletes and the way that they're viewed and the things that they can say. But that was her strength. It was getting people to be comfortable and asking questions that the men weren't asking. I think a lot of times, especially in that day and age, Things were very X's and O's when you talked about sports. You wanted to know just the X's and O's about the game. And she brought something new to the table, and people liked it. And she started a huge rage with women starting to get into sports. I mean, now it's it's you see more of it than we ever did. But she was the first. And you know what? Credit to her for getting in there and, and getting into it with the boys. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Brent Musburger you know, tweeted uh, Saturday that he believes she did not get enough credit for what she did, and, uh, and I'm afraid you know, this day and age maybe people you know don't recognize Phyllis George, but uh, as you said, you weren't born when she was there, but she influenced you. So, I, I, to me, maybe she is being remembered uh, a lot more than maybe people think. Yeah, I did see Musburger say that, and to a certain extent, I think that's probably true. I mean, now we have the Susie Colbers of the world and the Michelle Tafoyas of the world, and people had a storm. They've been on the sideline. They've been at those games. They've been covering professional sports for a long time. And listen, Ken, you can't talk about those women, and you can't talk about women in sports without giving some credit to Liz Bishop from our area, who was one of the first female reporters to go into a professional locker room. And I don't know if people really know that about Liz, but she's another pioneer in this business, and she also paved the way for a lot of us. So, you know, while maybe Phyllis George doesn't necessarily get the credit that she should, I think now, you, as you said, you see that a lot of female sportscasters are coming forward and saying, yeah, I mean, how can you not give her credit for what she did, breaking barriers and, and paving the way and making it a little bit easier on the rest of us? Yeah, I know there's still some... Chauvinist out there who don't think women should be doing sports, but to me, I uh, mean, it's it's I'm I'm comfortable. You, you you look at like a you look at a Beth Moans calling play by play of college football and sometimes uh, doing an, an NFL game. Uh, you know, Doris Burke. I mean, I, I love Doris Burke. She's great. I was the first in college basketball on ESPN. Now on the NBA, uh, I tell you, I, I think it's it's great that you know, there's I, I could I I rather sometimes listen to. A uh, Doris Burke than than a, maybe a Reggie Miller uh, calling calling on a game. Yeah, and the thing is, some of these women played at the highest level of their own sport, whether it be Doris Burke. Obviously, when you talk about oh, she didn't play football, but most of the men who are calling these games 
also didn't play football. It's the color analysts that those are the former athletes. So who cares if it's a man or a woman? And I think, you know, we've come a long way um, since Phyllis George started us off back in the 70s, but I think there's still definitely room to grow because, you know, I appreciate what you say about not caring if it's a man or a woman. I know my dad has been, you know, a huge push for me in that, in that it it doesn't matter. Um, And my brothers and my mom and my sister, the same thing. It was always... No, you do what you want, and, and don't worry about what other people say, and whether you're a man or a woman. You know your stuff. Just believe in that, and and trust your, yourself, and trust your instincts. And so we appreciate that you saying that, but there's still there's still a little ways to go. Yeah, and I know just uh, right before the uh, pandemic at NBC Sports Network, uh, did a hockey game with an all female crew, and that was that went over very well. And uh, it was yeah, I think yeah, also I think also uh, they did it up in Canada on. Um, uh, CBC up there, so or Sports uh, Rogers Sportsnet. So it, it's, it, I mean, I, I I don't I don't care who's calling games as long as, long as they're good and they bring me information. I'm happy. I agree with that completely. Well, let me talk to you about uh, you've been at you've been at Spectrum News since the beginning. When back was Capital News Night. It's going through a lot, a lot of name changes. I don't think I can keep up the name changes. When you said you started out news, but you know a lot of people know you as sports. Why the move back to news? Well, honestly, Ken, it was just an opportunity given to me that I, I couldn't pass up. It was, in a lot of ways, um, an, an opportunity for me at the station to grow as a manager and take the next step in my career there while still keeping my hand in sports and hopefully getting the chance to get back out on the sidelines on Friday night if high school football makes its return, hopefully in the fall. Um, so for me, it was an opportunity to grow not only um, in the station, but to challenge myself again in another way. Um, I, I felt challenged every day that I was in sports for whatever the reason may be, but it was good to start something new and to start start a new challenge um, for myself. And, you know, a lot of people will ask me that same thing. And I, I don't feel like I ever left sports and I'll totally give up sports. It'll always be part of hopefully what I do. Um, but it was a, it was a good opportunity to grow, um, and take my career to the next level as a, as a manager, uh, in the building. What was the most, what was the, the highlight of your sports career at, at Spectrum News slash Time Warner Cable News slash Capital News, Capital Nine News. I mean, have I got covered all the names there? The, you know, I, there was a few of them. Um, man, that's that's right, tough... YN, YNN. I forgot YNN too. Yep. <laughs> that's that's a tough question. Um, I I can't say that there has been just one thing that was necessarily the highlight, and that maybe sounds like a little bit of a cop out, but I've enjoyed everything that I've covered so much. And there hasn't been an event where I'm like, ugh, I don't, you know, this again, I don't like covering that. There hasn't been a sport that I feel that way about. Um, there have been so many things from high school state championships to being right there with the teams. I mean, listen, Kent, you were there when Union won the national championship. Mm-hmm. That was pretty unbelievable um, to not only cover a team that won a national championship at the Division One college level, but then for myself to also be a graduate of Union was was pretty special. I think my favorite memory, maybe, um, is one of the earliest in sports for me, and it was high school football, 2005. It was when Amsterdam played at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, and we were broadcasting that game live. Um, Amsterdam won, which made it amazing also, but the reason that it, that memory always will stay uh, important to me and mean the most to me is because um, it was the first time that, that really I got a chance to have my dad with me at my job. Mm-hmm. Um, it was back when we were broadcasting the games, and, and I drove to Syracuse myself. And he said, I'll drive with you. And I said, okay, let's, you know, we'll go. And I'd never been to the Carrier Dome. And, you know, to, to have that moment with my dad who taught me so much, everything about sports and everything for sure about football, to walk into the Carrier Dome and to be on the ground level for the first time was unbelievable. And we put him up in the press box and he had so much fun. So to me, that is one of those memories that will always stand out and always be one of my best memories. And I've I've covered so many amazing things, um, 
watching American Pharaoh and Justify win the Triple Crown, pretty good. But it was it was that 2005 that that always stays with me. Yeah. Um, speaking of high school football, I mean, obviously we see these we saw the sports uh, spring sports season canceled because of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. What did, what's your gut feeling about high school football? Will we see you on the sidelines? Will we see games? Ken, I have to be honest. I don't. I don't know. I I would hate to say one way or the other because I honestly I don't have any inside information, and I don't think anyone does. I think this is something that the state and um, the New York State Public High School Athletic Association are really looking at very carefully and not looking too far ahead. If I had to guess. And this would just be a guess. This is, again, not me knowing anything. I would say that, yes, high school football games will happen, but most likely without without people there. Hmm. Well, at least if they get the games going, I, feel, I, you know, we, I think we all know we feel bad for the, for the spring sports uh, athletes, especially the seniors who don't get to finish out their high school <laughs> careers. I was just very, really ashamed that this happened, but I think everybody's understanding and Let's let's hope we have some kind of uh, fall season, even if it's not with, with even if fans can't attend. At least let's let the kids play and let them have their uh, experience of playing uh, high school athletics. Yeah, I think it would be tough on a lot of these schools and teams, um, not only football but all the fall fall sports. It's, if it couldn't happen, so I know uh, the state is looking at it closely, and obviously NISPA is looking at it very closely. So that would be my 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 guess, my best guess. Um, right now, what do you think? I, I, it seems like we're slowly getting back there. I mean, as we talk here on Tuesday, it looks like the Capitol region is going to open up, uh, reopen things. And I think I, I'm going to be the optimist here. I say, I say we'll have high school sports, but there obviously will be uh, the, the spacing maybe on the sideline. You spread the players out, spread the coaching staffs out. Uh, but I, I think we'll play. We may, maybe won't, we won't start right exactly uh, when school starts, but maybe uh, mid-September we, we get going. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think whether or not school starts and what that looks like and how school starts will, will be huge. Um, as you know, Ken, a lot of these teams would be doing things now, whether it's morning lifts or um, you know some team workouts off the field, and then summer camp starts for teams coming up in June. So they'll be they'll be behind the eight ball for sure, but all of the teams will be in the same position. Well, Marissa, it was great to catch up with you, and uh, congratulations on the uh, new position there at uh, Spectrum News, and uh, hopefully I'll run into you somewhere along the way. Ken, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it and love reading all your articles over there. Well, I appreciate it, Marissa. Thank you very much. That's Marissa Jacks. Coming up, I'll talk with American Hockey League President Dave Andrews about the league's decision last Monday to cancel the rest of the regular season and Calder Cup playoffs. You're listening to the Party Shots Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. I'm Dr. Howard Zucker, New York State's Health Commissioner. I'm calling on all New Yorkers to do their part to slow the spread of coronavirus. Everyone, even young people and those who feel well, stay home. If you must go outside, stay six feet from others. This will ensure everyone who needs hospital care can get it. This virus spreads even without symptoms. Stay home and stay safe. Be a part now so we can all be together later. Stay informed at health.ny.gov coronavirus. Welcome back to the podcast. Last Monday, the American Hockey League announced that due to the coronavirus pandemic, it was canceling the remainder of the regular season and the Calder Cup playoffs. This marking the first time in league history that the Cup won't be presented. My next guest has been the president of the AHL for 26 years, and in that time, the league has spread its wings across the United States. He is stepping down as president on June 30th. Please welcome Dave Andrews. Dave, uh, good to talk again. It's been a while. It has, Ken. It's nice to talk to you again as well. I appreciate you coming on here in a few minutes to talk about uh, the announcement last Monday. How tough was this decision to make? I mean, you guys waited two months. Uh, I think people we realized it was going to happen, but it's just still at the same time. How disappointing was it? Well, it was it was disappointing, but as you say, Ken, uh, not unexpected. We we suspended play on March the twelfth, and uh, 
really were focused uh, for the first week or so in in obviously focusing on the safety of our staff and our players and all of our team staffs and our fans and um, you know for the first little while it was all about figuring out next steps and getting our players uh, uh, away from their team cities into their homes if they lived somewhere other than uh, than in an AHL city and uh, also getting our officials back off the road and all of the little things you might not think about that have to be done uh, pretty urgently in a situation like that uh, I think we knew once we sent our players home around I think that was around the 16th of March 15th 16th 17th of March somewhere in there that it was unlikely we would be able to bring them back to play um, you know, the CDC around that point uh, issued sort of a two-month uh, uh, directive that had no, uh, you know, no spectators in arenas and that sort of thing. So uh, we, you know, we suspended play uh, officially through until the month of May and, uh, you know, in order to keep our options open. But I think we knew that it was unlikely we would return to play. Uh, just, just before, just towards the end of April, we uh, really pivoted our focus towards 2021 and, and beginning to look at how uh, what the return to play might look like, how can we prepare for that, uh, what kind of models can we build in terms of scheduling and, and in terms of financial projections to uh, uh, to help our teams look at what uh, what may be out ahead of us in the next uh, in the next several months. Uh, once we pivoted in that direction, it was clear we were going to suspend our season, and we you know essentially called a meeting of our board. Uh, which really didn't last very long. It was uh, clear to everyone, and I had spoken with everyone before the board meeting, that uh, that this was uh, the right thing to do at that time. So, yeah, it was a, it was tough. Uh, it, it was a tough day on uh, you know on the Friday evening when the board approved unanimously canceling our season. It was a, a tough day on Monday when we announced it, and and it became even more real as you know we started to deal with the you know we deal with the media and. Um, all of that that we, we, we were done you know and, and uh, so it was difficult but um, you know lots of people are going through difficult times right now so um, you know all we can do is, is uh, be positive and optimistic and, and build towards next season. Was there any thought of trying to at least maybe salvage the Calder Cup playoffs and playing uh, maybe you know one or two hubs around the league? No, we. I know the National Hockey League uh, continues to look at that, and I think for the NHL and their business model, I, I think it's they're hopeful, and I'm hopeful, and I'm sure all hockey fans are that they will find a way uh, to go back and play and, and finish 1920 and play a Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, and and I think you know the, the the television rights fees and the other business uh, uh, you know commitments that the NHL has and opportunities that they have are. Uh, you know, quite different from what the American Hockey League has. So uh, we didn't give any thought really to coming back and playing uh, in buildings without fans. And, uh, you know, under the, under the conditions that are currently in existence across our 31 cities uh, with public health authorities, if we were able to play, it certainly wouldn't be uh, uh, with fans in the building. And as a business model, that doesn't really work for us. So I can't say that we spent a whole lot of time kind of spitballing how that might work. We were really focused on winding up the 1920 season properly in, in every respect and, and and beginning to really look ahead to 2021 and how we can make that work. I guess the fortunate thing is a lot, you, know, you play a lot of games this season, so maybe the financial impact may not be as bad but for the teams, but it's going forward into next season – if you don't start on time, how, does, how would it affect the, the uh, 31 clubs financially and the league? Well, it would depend uh, very much you know, on what, what that return to play looks like. And, and uh, you know, obviously what percentage of capacity of a building we would be able to, to put in, how many fans could we put in a building and under what configuration. Uh, all of those things are uncertain at this point. So, uh, you know, I think everything's in play from, you know, from uh, – you know, full buildings and a you know thirty-one team season that starts in October uh, to some sort of uh, shorter schedule that uh, that we could build that would have uh, would still be sustainable financially. Um, and so that there's a lot in play, and we're we're really engaging our teams in a lot of uh, model building. Like we're, right now, our 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 nineteen sorry our twenty twenty one schedule is being built. Uh, for October through April, as per usual, and uh, 1,146 games. Uh, we have to build that because there's a chance we could play. And uh, until we know we can't, we've got to be ready. 
but at the same time, while that's being built, as I say, we're, we're doing a lot of financial projections and modeling different lengths of schedules um, to, to be ready in case we can't play in all of our jurisdictions until uh, November or December or even January. Have you heard from the, Have you heard from the fans about uh, that, that, that about the season being canceled? I mean, what's their been reaction uh, about it? I, I've got to tell you. I mean, I, I don't. I haven't heard directly from fans, but but I guess I have because I deal with all of our team presidents on a almost a daily basis, and uh, the, the response of our fans across North America has been incredibly positive. I think our teams did a really good job right away of reaching out. Uh, and seeing particularly the season ticket holders and the core fans of our teams. Um, you know, our teams were in touch with them and reaching out not so much on the business side, but just to see how they were doing and to connect with them. And, and our teams have been doing a lot of really good community work in terms of supporting, uh, you know, frontline workers and, and doing everything they can to, uh, uh, to be positive influences in the community. Uh, so uh, we, we've had really no negativity from our fan base they understand the situation we're in uh, i think we've done a good job at the league level and at the team level of of continuing to generate uh, you know good content on social media and on our digital platforms to keep our fans uh, engaged have them have a place to go and and follow some hockey information and news and show them some great games from previous years on our on our youtube channel those sorts of things um so overall, people have been really good, and I, I, I'm sure in every other walk of life, that's what's happening too. It's for me, our our team presidents have been very supportive, very encouraging, uh, appreciative of what we're doing. Uh, the National Hockey League has been an incredible source of support for us uh, ever since March 12th, really, and and uh, the leadership that they've given us has been incredibly helpful. So I, I think, as with any other time of great need people tend to pull together and work together and and show some empathy for you though personally dave as i mentioned this is your you know, final year as president of the ahl for you have your tenure in this way I mean, for you is it disappointing oh yeah I, i'd be uh, less than candid if, if i didn't admit that i'm disappointed i, I mean we had looked forward uh, my wife and i to uh, you know the the final three months of the season and getting out and seeing games and having Calder Cup playoffs and presenting the Cup for the last time and attending our annual meeting and various other meetings that we have with our Players Association and, you know, being able to, to kind of say proper farewells to the people I've worked with over the years and, uh, you know, that's just not possible right now, but, you know, everyone's expectations is everyone in whatever walk of life they're in, their expectations have changed over the last number of months. And their quality of life has changed, and and uh, you know we're no different. So, uh, you know, I, again, I, I at some point we will, you know, we'll recover from this, and the American Hockey League will play again, and and hopefully I'll be able to come back and see all of those people and thank them in person. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a you know kind of a crazy way to end my career, to be honest. <laughs> As I mentioned, also the fact that this, this league has grown so much. You have, you're, you're from uh, you know, East Coast, West Coast. Yeah, I, I covered the uh, Hershey Bears for the York Daily Record. It was my first really my, my first big job in, in uh, sports journalism back in 1985. covered them for five years. And I remember how small the league was back then. And then the International Hockey League started to, uh, it, you know, take some of the top players away from the A, and it seemed like they were offering bigger contracts, and you became president in 1994. What was, the, what was your t- goal in trying to get the American Hockey League back on track and make it the premier uh, uh, minor league for hockey? I think the, I mean, the original initial goal, I think, back in 94 was as simple as, as the survival of the league. Like, we, we were facing, as you just mentioned, uh, tremendous competition from the IHL who who were expanding rapidly adding uh, adding very strong financial ownership to their league uh, they were in big markets they were attracting our players they were also attracting NHL affiliations which is the lifeblood of how our league had operated and uh, you know we had a, a kind of a blueprint for how we wanted to tackle moving forward which certainly was clearly to uh, you know, to differentiate ourselves from the IHL and, and, and make clear to the NHL that we were going to be a dedicated player development league. 
that we would build the uh, regulations that we needed to build to make sure that happened. And at the same time, um, you know, expand our league, attract stronger ownership, um, you know, all of the things that we eventually did. And by, you know, by 2001, we had built something that had enough quality to it that, uh, you know, there was only going to be one league survive, I thought, when I started, and uh, and no one would have predicted it was us. Um, and yet by 2001, the AHL was the league that survived, and we brought over six really good owners and really good franchises from the IHL when they went down. And uh, from there on, we've, you know, continued to grow and, and reach the stage where we could match up one-to-one with the NHL in terms of the number of franchises and every, every NHL team having an American Hockey League affiliate. So... And then, you know, in 2015, we, we pushed West, uh, you know, not really driven by my vision, uh, but driven by the NHL clubs on the West Coast wanting their NH- their AHL teams to be closer so they could monitor their players and, and help grow the game of hockey on the West Coast. So uh, as, as we worked through all of that, we, we ended up with a, you know, a pretty, a pretty good national footprint in the United States compared to what we had had before. And, uh, and more importantly, we had, you know, eight NHL teams, Western-based NHL teams, much happier with their, uh, you know, with their presence and their role in the American Hockey League. So we're, we're in a, a very good place up until March 12th. We were in the best place we've ever been, and, and now we're in a whole heap of uncertainty. But, uh, but you know, we'll come out of it at some point here. Of course, there'll be a 32nd team most likely when uh, Seattle begins playing the NHL. Uh, has there any been talk of where they might end up? Well, they they have actually committed to playing in Palm Springs, California, in a facility that has yet to be built. So uh, I I think there's some, uh, you know, construction delay there as a result of what we're going through. So I'm I'm not sure. I've got myself in a position where I'm not worrying about 21-22. That's going to be somebody (laughs) else's problem. Let me ask you this. Obviously, the AHL was in the uh, Capital Region for a long time uh, between uh, Glens Falls and Albany. Yeah, it's been a while since um, anybody's really talked about the AHL here. I know there's a lot of still a lot of Albany Devils fans here in the area. What do you think would it take to get an AHL team back here in the Capital Region? Well, that's that's a that's a great question. I, I think you know it's hard to say. I, many of our team, I mean, most of our teams now, I think, are settled in. You know, in the communities that they're in, and you know, we, as you know from being around the league as long as you have, we've been through a lot of movement and a lot of uh, ups and downs over the years to get where we are today. And so, you never say never in terms of, uh, of relocations of franchises. But I don't expect we're going to see any expansion of the league in the in the in the near future. Probably even in the next five or ten years, I don't see that happening until the NHL expands further. And uh, in terms of teams relocating into the, the capital district region or, or up into Glens Falls, I just think that, you know, the, the sort of uh, anticipated fan support and, and, you know, projected revenue and all those kinds of things would need to be in place. And uh, not to say it won't happen at some point because we, you know, we have teams in a lot of markets that are probably not as strong as, as Albany and certainly not as hockey crazy as, as uh, Glens Falls. So you never know. I, and I think, you know, looking back as I as I leave the job, I have really fond memories of, of both uh, Glens Falls and Albany, and and uh, I have a lot of friends there still, and a lot of people that that uh, I really enjoyed working with in in both uh, you know with the Red Wings and, and Phantoms up in Adirondack, and and also obviously with beginning with the River Rats and and uh, and on with the Devils, and it, it's uh, you know it's it's always tough when we leave those markets, but. It, probably tougher leaving uh, Albany and Glens Falls just because of the number of people and fans that I got to know because it's close to where we live. So I, I saw a lot of games in there. And, uh, you know, losing Walter Robb uh, during the early stages of this uh, COVID-19 crisis was uh, was a tremendously uh, uh, disappointing kind of setback. Like, Walter was a, just a terrific guy and, and uh, did a lot for the American Hockey League and obviously a lot for hockey in Albany. And that was uh, that was certainly tough news. Well, Dave, I appreciate you coming on uh, for a few minutes here to talk about uh, the league. It's great to catch up with you, and uh, all the best to you in retirement. I hope you, you enjoyed it. You did a great job uh, you know, making the league what it is right now, and uh, you know, hopefully uh, you'll enjoy retirement. Thank you. I hope we will, too, at some point. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. All right. Thank you, Dave. That's Dave Andrews back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment.
Hi, this is Ken Schott, Associate Sports Editor of the Daily Gazette and host of the Parting Shots podcast. The coronavirus has affected many American lives. To help prevent the spread of the coronavirus, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have the following tips. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue, then throw the tissue in the trash. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces. Stay home when you are sick, except to get medical care. And finally, wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. For more information, go to www.cdc.gov COVID-19. Follow the Daily Gazette's continuing coverage of the coronavirus online at dailygazette.com and in the print edition. Back to wrap up the podcast, keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you are doing in this difficult time. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I'd like to thank Mike McAdam, Marissa Jacks, and Dave Andrews for coming on the show. The Parting Shots podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. Subscribe today. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Party Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Party Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, enjoy the Memorial Day weekend, and stay safe.